This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. This evening, I'm joined by British-Palestinian political researcher and writer Hamza Ali Shah. Um, Hamza, welcome to Navarra Live. I think it's your first time on, or at least your first time as a co-host. Yeah, first time on. Both, actually. Perfect. Um, you, you've written for us before, though, and you've written for, for Tribune and various other magazines. And we have a Palestine-heavy show for you this evening, although we will be taking um, a, a, a short break from that story to discuss the latest developments from the COVID inquiry. First story. Israel has now been bombing Gaza for 46 days straight. In that time, they've dropped tens of thousands of tons of explosives onto the territory, killing over 13,000 Palestinians and laying waste to Gaza's infrastructure. Meanwhile, only a handful of Israeli hostages have been released by Hamas, who also say many have been killed in the constant rocket fire. As a strategy to secure the safety of the hostages, Israel's assault hasn't been working. But behind the scenes, diplomacy might be about to secure relief for both Palestinians in Gaza and some of the 240 hostages held by Hamas. Ishmael Haniyeh, the most senior political leader of Hamas, has said that a truce with Israel may now be close, that's reported by The Guardian. And Haaretz has reported this in the last few hours. So Netanyahu has said, we are making progress. I hope there will be good news soon. Netanyahu on hostage deal talks. So what do we know about the details of any possible ceasefire deal. Well, according to Haaretz, Hamas will release 50 women and children, but no military personnel. That will be in exchange for the release of around 150 Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons. Talks are apparently also underway over the release of a few dozen Israeli hostages held by other groups inside Gaza. Crucially, the agreement reportedly involves a five-day ceasefire intended to allow aid and medical support to enter Gaza, with the Israeli government reportedly agreeing to allow 300 food trucks to enter Gaza each day of the ceasefire. CNN has also reported that the Israeli government has agreed that no surveillance drones will fly over Gaza for six hours each day of the ceasefire. The full details of the deal brokered by Qatar with US support is likely um, to be announced later this evening with the Israeli government currently meeting. Rumours of an imminent ceasefire deal have been circulating for days, but the speed with which an agreement appears to be progressing could suggest a change in Israel's strategy. And one factor influencing that could be the overwhelming mistrust Israeli voters are showing towards Benjamin Netanyahu. A poll conducted earlier this week found that Netanyahu would be overwhelmingly defeated if an election were held now. And amongst Israelis, those most vocal about Netanyahu's failings are the families of the hostages held inside Gaza. On Saturday, the families of many of the hostages arrived in Jerusalem, having marched for five days from Tel Aviv. They were there to meet with Netanyahu and other politicians, having repeatedly urged the government to focus on the release of their relatives rather than a military operation in Gaza. One meeting that took place in the Knesset yesterday resulted in some angry scenes. In this video, the first man you'll see is Hen Abigdori, whose wife and daughter are being held by Hamas. The second is far-right politician Almog Cohen. Okay. 
חבר'ה, תקשיבו לי, אתם רוצים להגיע לדיון אפקטיבי? תדברו, אל תלכו שלום אחרי פוליטיקאים קטנים. אל תגיד רוצים להרוג ערבים, כי מי שהרג אותנו ביום שבת זה לא אנחנו אותם, זה הם אותם. The context of that argument is a proposal in Israel's parliament to introduce the death penalty for Hamas militants involved in the October 7th attack. Families have argued that talk of executions will only put their relatives at greater risk. Another group of families met with Netanyahu and his war cabinet last night. Udi Goren, who we interviewed several weeks ago, is the cousin of one of the hostages. He attended that meeting, giving this impression of it afterwards. I went in to, just for, with one single question, to know if the, all of the war cabinet supports the same stand that Gantz and Eisenkot took a couple of days ago when they met with us. When they said absolutely clear, without hesitation, that bringing out the hostages is the top priority as far as they're concerned. And now when we've met with the entire cabinet, What we've heard is that taking down Hamas and bringing the hostages are as important, are equally important. As far as I am concerned, and I represent myself and my family, this is incredibly disappointing because I feel that at this point, when we know that taking down Hamas, we keep hearing from them, is going to take months or years, and it's going to take a long time, On the other hand, the other objective is time-sensitive. People are dying. We know that for sure. And as the other goal is time-sensitive, and we're talking about people's lives, then we all feel, especially when we're talking about our families, that this should be the top priority. A five-day ceasefire would give some respite to the citizens of Gaza, but it's still a long way from any kind of sustainable peace. Two weeks ago, Netanyahu gave this interview to CNN where he laid out a brutal vision for the future of Palestine. Are you saying that Israel would not accept giving control of Gaza over to the Palestinian Authority after the war? First, the first thing we have to do is uh, destroy Hamas because otherwise they'll do it again and again and again, and they've said so. So we'll destroy Hamas. The second thing we have to understand is that there has to be an overriding and overreaching Israeli military envelope because we've seen any place that we leave, uh, we just, you know, exit, give it to some other force. Very soon terrorism resurges, so we've achieved nothing. The third thing we have to understand is that a civilian authority has to cooperate in two goals. One is to demilitarize Gaza, and the second is to de-radicalize Gaza. And I have to say that the Palestinian Authority has uh, unfortunately failed on both counts. An overreaching Israeli military envelope sounds like a euphemism for ongoing occupation. But in a sign of disagreement between Israel and its most important ally, President Joe Biden wrote this in a Washington Post opinion piece on Saturday. So he wrote, to start, Gaza must never again be used as a platform for terrorism. There must be no forcible displacement of Palestinians from Gaza, no reoccupation, no siege or blockade and no reduction in territory. And after this war is over, the voices of Palestinian people and their aspirations must be at the center of post-crisis governance in 
Gaza. And he said, as we strive for peace, Gaza and the West Bank should be reunited under a single governance structure, ultimately under a revitalized Palestinian authority as we all work towards a two-state solution. He says, I have been emphatic with Israel's leaders that extremist violence against Palestinians in the West Bank must stop and that those committing the violence must be held accountable. The United States is prepared to take our own steps, including issuing visa bans against extremists attacking civilians in the West Bank. And then he said the international community must commit resources to support the people of Gaza in the immediate aftermath of this crisis, including interim security measures and establishing a reconstruction mechanism to sustainably meet Gaza's long-term needs. And it is imperative that no terrorist threats ever again emanate from Gaza or the West Bank. Um, I don't take those words particularly seriously from Joe Biden. Two reasons. One, I don't really think the the future he is proposing seems particularly realistic, right? If if he is saying um, they should keep bombing until Hamas are completely destroyed in Gaza, then that's going to mean a shed loads of people killed, a lot more than have already been killed, and a hell of a lot of people have already been killed, and a lot of anger. And he seems to be suggesting, okay, so we'll we'll, we'll, we'll carpet bomb Gaza, um, that will destroy Hamas, then we will bring in the Palestinian Authority, who the citizens of Gaza will, will suddenly accept, even though they're seen as lackeys for the Israeli state, which has just bombed their families, you know, killed all of their neighbors. There'll be lots of people with very severe injuries in, in, in Gaza, won't there? Um, the idea is they'll just accept the Palestinian Authority coming in. Oh, and by the way, we'll ask Israel nicely and they'll stop expanding their settlements on the West Bank. Does it, to me, it doesn't make any sense. And my second problem with it is that these are just words, right? So the United States has for decades said that they are opposed to things such as settlement expansion in the West Bank. Obama talked a lot about it. George Bush sort of suggested making aid conditional on not expanding um, settlements in the West Bank, but none of them did it. They all just said, oh, we're telling Israel to stop doing it while pumping them with military aid and economic aid and giving them all the diplomatic support they want, vetoing any critical motion that goes to the UN Security Council and sending our military equipment and you know aircraft carriers to try and make sure that no other countries will threaten Israel's security so they have complete free reign um, to bomb Gaza or expand settlements in the West Bank. You know, it goes on and on and on. Um, Hamza, I suppose let's focus on this talk of the ceasefire. Um, obviously, it's been a big demand um, across the world among progressives to say we want a ceasefire now. Um, it, it does seem as if we are closer to a, a ceasefire than we had been for a while, um, but potentially only for five days. I mean, what's your reaction? Yeah, I think there's been, you know, rumours have been circulating in reports, uh, particularly with, you know, Qatar diplomacy and all the rest of it. Um, and again, the words are important because they're saying, you know, five-day ceasefire, which effectively amounts to a pause, you know, here's some respite before we begin the carpet bombing again, which is, which is exactly what uh, the Palestinians don't want. Um, obviously, some respite is good given the nature of the humanitarian catastrophe, which we're seeing. I think it makes a lot of the people, particularly in Britain, who so vehemently oppose the ceasefire, look a, a bit a bit silly, I think, because they said, what would a ceasefire achieve? And, you know, you've seen the discourse in the last week or so where um, anybody calling for a ceasefire is seen to be, you know, this really radical approach when, when actually it should be the bare minimum. Um so I think I think it is welcome. I think it will be welcome in large parts, um, but it has to be, like you said, it has to be part of kind of a sustainable move away from this campaign of mass slaughter. Because I mean, Israel has been unambiguous in its intentions um, in Gaza, and incidentally, already a few um, 
far-right ministers in, in Israel have made it clear that they oppose they oppose the ceasefires. I think Smotrich and Ben Gavir have already rejected it. And it and it again it goes goes back to the initial idea. Israel's operation, Israel's onslaught in Gaza is not solely to do with the hostages. It's made abundantly clear this is about elimination, annihilation, a genocide. Um and so if it was all about hostages as you know the international community or parts of it would, would have us believe, then why are Israeli ministers opposed to it? Um and, and like I said, it is. It shouldn't amount to just a temporary pause before they begin with the same level of bombardment as we saw previously. Yeah, I mean, I think this idea of a temporary ceasefire, so as far as I understand it, if my memory is correct, what's often been the case when Israel bombards Gaza is they do it for a few days and this talk of diplomatic clocks, which we keep hearing, sort of they bomb Gaza until their supporters in the West say, guys, it's gone a bit too far. Can you stop now? Then you can you agree some kind of ceasefire? And those, you know, they, those wouldn't be permanent ceasefires in the sense that they were like peace deals, but they wouldn't just be temporary pauses. And it seems to me that uh, this war has a very different dynamic because my interpretation is that this temporary ceasefire wouldn't really be because of Western pressure. It seems that it would be much more to do with the dynamics of how to get hostages back and internal pressure within Israel to secure the safe passage of some of those hostages. Because, it's, you know, people have, the, the diplomatic clock basically means when Joe Biden and the Americans tell the Israelis, you've done enough damage now, you're going to have to go to politics. You know, you, you can't just keep dropping bombs. We're taking too much of a hit in, you know, with our other allies, you've got to stop. doesn't seem like that's happened yet. The talk is still that Joe Biden is, is, is willing for Israel to continue their war for, for a few more weeks at least. So, so this doesn't seem like the moment that you often get after a sort of bombardment of Gaza, where they say, "Okay, we've done our bombing." Their very sort of cynical and sinister phrase is, is mowing the lawn. So they say uh, their policy towards Gaza had been essentially to to completely ignore it, um, and then every sort of few years or so they do some bombing to degrade Hamas's um, capabilities. And you know they had thought that was sustainable. Obviously, this attack broke that illusion to some degree. Let's go straight on to our next and very much related story, which is uh, another part of Palestine. While international attention has been on the bombardment of Gaza, the West Bank has also seen a dramatic increase in violence since October the 7th. 200 Palestinians have been killed so far, 52 of them children, and at least eight were murdered by settlers who international NGOs have accused of taking advantage of the war to act with impunity in an ongoing land grab. So far, the entire population of 16 communities has been displaced by armed settler militias who reportedly terrorise Palestinian families day and night. But significant violence is also coming from the IDF. Sky News has played this harrowing account of the shooting of a father and his son in the West Bank in October. The family watched from their balcony as 15-year-old Taha was shot dead below them. He'd heard Israeli troops were in town and he'd gone out with a friend, phone in hand, his family said, to have a look. We're not showing the moment he died, but he appeared to present no threat. The screams are from Sarah, Taha's sister. She'd just filmed her brother being killed. He is in the very dice right now. He had three shots, his leg, and the last one in under eyes, his eyes. Yeah. Moments after, she filmed her father. He'd gone out to help his son. He too was shot. 
Ibrahim is out of hospital now, his physical wounds okay. healing. I saw my son laying on the floor with no value, like an animal. I said, I am a father. The boy has been killed. I ask for mercy. Then I heard bullets around me and they hit my back. And my daughter said, come back, dad. And we, we, we've spoken a few times on the show about sort of the government minister who described um, Gazans as human animals. And, you know, the, the language is shocking because it seems to be ev evidence of genocidal intent. But, I mean, Palestinians being treated like animals is something which goes back way beyond the start of this war, as that um, father there um, suggested. Of course, those shootings that you just saw there were after October the 7th, but it's not exactly anything new in the West Bank. Um, evidence has also emerged of IDF soldiers apparently humiliating and threatening Palestinians for fun. This video was filmed outside a mosque near Ramallah as the morning call to prayer is sung. <laughs> That soldier has now been suspended, but he's only one. Since the war began, Haaretz has been documenting IDF soldiers who post videos online recording their assaults on Palestinians, reporting this. The Palestinians appearing in the videos are typically handcuffed and blindfolded. In some cases, they appear undressed or partially dressed. In some of the videos, soldiers are seen beating and cursing the detainees. In others, they force them to say things or act in a humiliating fashion. There's lots of those videos on Twitter, all very disturbing. Um, Haaretz has so far found 15 such videos. On the Today program, Israeli spokesperson Ilon Levy was asked to justify events in the West Bank. Hamas is not in control of the West Bank, correct? No, Hamas is in control of the Gaza Strip. 200 Palestinians, two, 200 Palestinians, including 52 children, have been killed by Israeli forces and another eight by Israeli settlers since October the 7th, after a period which was already especially deadly in 2022 and 2023. Michelle, you asked me to answer a question about proportionality, and then you once took the question towards the casualty figures, and then yeah, I'm also asking you about the West Bank, as we've reported I'm from the West Bank, and President Biden is one of is amongst the people very concerned about what's been happening in the West Bank. Why, why are so many Palestinians dying in the West Bank? Michelle, you asked a question about Israel's proportionality in our campaign to defeat Hamas in the West, in the Gaza Strip, in response to the October seventh massacre. And I'm trying to answer your question. And, and we've, 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 we've spent we've spent much of this interview on the subject of Gaza. What's your answer to are why you, so many Palestinians are? Are you satisfied that Israel's response is proportionate? What, or do I need why are so many Palestinians response? dying in the West Bank? Well, I want to know whether the answer I gave you is satisfactory or whether you would like further clarification. It's not for me that. to say whether an answer is satisfactory or not. I've just asked you a question about the West Bank. Okay, well, I hope that the answer that I presented about Israel's proportionate response... Are you not willing to answer questions about the West Bank? The situation in the West Bank is that Hamas has been trying to escalate the conflict beyond the borders of the Gaza Strip towards Lebanon, towards the West Bank, towards Yemen. We are doing everything we can to try to contain that conflict so it doesn't escalate further as Hamas tries to escalate it and widen that conflict. He didn't answer why. How would it help to not escalate this conflict to be kicking people out of their homes so that radically right-wing settlers can take over their houses and their land? You know, Israel have managed, I mean, you know, I think it's 
I mean, it's not convincing to us, and I think it's increasingly less convincing to the rest of the world to sort of say their deadly bombardment of, of Gaza is an anti-terror operation. They can't say that about anything they're doing in the West Bank, right? They are kicking people out of their homes so that right-wing settlers can take the land. There is, there is no way you can possibly frame that as an anti-terror operation, which I think is why the spokesperson there was just desperately trying to change the subject, saying like, no, let's go back to talking about Gaza. Let's go back to talking about Gaza. It's like, no, I want to talk about the West Bank. Um, Hamza, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? There are some sort of some theories that settlers in the West Bank and, and the IDF in the West Bank are becoming more aggressive and more deadly because international focus is, is, is in Gaza. Um, at the same time, I mean, international focus is just on Israel-Palestine more than it had been before. So it doesn't seem obvious to me that sort of the increased aggressiveness of Israel in the West Bank would be because they think no one will notice. I don't know if it's just, you know, there's just more aggression in Israeli society at the moment, including in the IDF. What do you, what do you think is going on here? There's a sense, I think there's a sense of emboldenment for the settlers and, and also the Israeli forces within within the West Bank. My family, of, who reside in the West Bank, um, have actually said there are certain roads which kind of there's an, there's an agreed consensus amongst Palestinians. You know, they've been warning each other, don't use these type of roads, don't use a checkpoint at this time, because the risk is just so high at the moment. It is literally uh, life and death for a lot of them. And I think it's worth pointing out, 2023, before October the 7th, was already the, the, the deadliest year. Um, for Palestinian fatalities in almost two decades, I think it was. I think at least two hundred were murdered. There's been at least two hundred murdered since, at least two thousand seven hundred injured, and again fifty of those are children. So this is this is part. This is why we keep we keep saying Israel's strategy in the West Bank and in Gaza is one of systematic ethnic cleansing. You can't separate what's happening in Gaza without also looking at the West Bank. I mean, Israeli human rights organisations have called it the biggest land grab um, since 1967. So uh, you know. All the facts on the ground show that Israel's annihilation of Gaza is also taking place, perhaps in lesser numbers, but in, you know, the strategic objective remains the same in Gaza as it does in the West Bank, which is, you know, total Palestinian ethnic cleansing. The number of prisoners has, has almost doubled um, just since October the 7th. And again, the number of prisoners, particularly without charge or trial, was already at a, um, at a peak rate, at, you know, at an extremely high rate in 2023. As it was. So, you know, 2023 was already a real year in terms of fatalities in the West Bank. We saw an increase in raids, we've seen an increase in house demolitions, we've seen an increase in the construction of illegal settlements, the legalizing of, um, um, of, of settlements. So everything points towards, you know, a real intensification of, of the land grab and the and annexation of the West Bank. Um, and that was before anything uh, materialized or took place in Gaza. And that's why it goes, it goes back to the previous point uh, about Biden's um, robotic renditions about a two-state solution. You know, the, the situation on the ground is being fertile for annexation in the West Bank, not for a two-state solution or any tangible Palestinian state. And uh, I mean, you said your, your, your family, people you know in the West Bank, they're saying avoid these roads because they're worried about what will happen. I mean, can you be a bit more sort of precise? What, what do they think will happen if they, if they use those, those roads in this period of time? Yeah, so because there's an increased um, settler presence and a lot of those settlers are now armed as well. And, you know, checkpoints have been tightened. So previously, you know, where you might have work permits, those have been cancelled as well. So basically, there's a real um, elimination or a further elimination of freedom of movement for Palestinians. And, and like I said, many of them are on strike. My family, some of them have not gone to work for, for two or three weeks now, if not longer. Um, and there's a real fear, you know, raids keep increasing the number of, um, you know, the number of, uh, homes that have been demolished and people that have been terrorized by settlers. There's a real fear that has, um, or a cultural fear that has been, that's really intensified of late. And as again, as, as I want to emphasize, one that had been building up throughout the year, 
um, before anything had, had happened, before Israel began its bombardment of Gaza. I suppose one more question just about sort of the relationships between people in the West Bank and people in Gaza, because, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's one people, it's the Palestinian people in historic Palestine. But presumably those two, you know, territories have been completely divided for at least 17 years now. I mean, what are the sort of relations between Palestinians in the West Bank and Palestinians in Gaza now? And I mean, you know, how are Palestinians in the West Bank seeing the bombardment of of Gaza? I mean, do you have a do you have a sense of that? Yes, yeah, it's, it's very much seen as um, you know the, the the way in which Gaza is seen as you know it's an enclave, densely populated, it's always prone to bombardment. The West Bank is seen more of a kind of a land theft and a permanent state of occupation, permanent state of subjugation, which does face um, intensified raids, which we've seen throughout the years, um, especially this year. Ginny, Nablus, um, Jericho have all been have been raided. There's a sense in 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 the West Bank that the what happens in Gaza spills over. So when you see Kind of the, the green light that uh, the international community has given has given to Israeli forces in Gaza, and you see the, the mass slaughter, the mass murder. They kind of the, the sentiment, that's particularly from my family um, in the West Bank and, and, and friends, is is that we we kind of see that Israeli forces will now be emboldened here. So whether that means um, more house demolitions, whether it means um, increased rage, whether it means just more impunity um, for the Israeli forces to act with, and we have been seeing that play out because, like I said, the settlers kind of know they're protected by the state. Um, Palestinians are randomly stopped and searched. They're randomly detained. Um, so the level of violence, if you like, the 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 extent of the occupation, intensification of the oppression, um, always there is a relationship there between what, what happens in Gaza. Because especially this year, more than ever, um, the green light awarded to Israel by the international community has had you know tangible impact, obviously in Gaza, but in the West Bank, where Palestinians, it's basically deemed fair game um, to target Palestinians in any capacity. Let's go to our next story. We're going to come back to Israel-Palestine rather soon. We're just going to go um, to a UK story first. The inquiry into the government's handling of COVID-19 has given the public an insight into the shambolic way former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his cabinet dealt with the pandemic. But new evidence also appears to have implicated the current Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak was, of course, the Chancellor throughout the height of COVID-19. And while he's often presented himself as the nation's saviour for having introduced furlough, a key witness has now suggested he wasn't quite as concerned for our safety as he likes to suggest. The UK government's chief, the UK government's chief scientific advisor at the time was Patrick Balance. After taking the stand, one piece of his testimony made front pages. So you can see here, it's on the mirror, Sunak let people die. And this is from um, a a diary entry. Now, the claim, as I say, is based on entries that Valance made in the diaries he kept throughout the pandemic. And this is the moment in the hearing that that evidence came up. 25th of October. So about for about a month, would it have been by then that Sage, the Sage advice essentially had been that a circuit breaker lockdown was needed. Um, And then you, DC, I'm looking at the last nine now, DC, Dominic Cummings says, Rishi thinks just let people die and that's okay. And then this feels like a complete lack of leadership. Is that your comment at the end there? Uh, Yes, I think so. I mean, perhaps it's obvious. Again, tell us, is this one of your late night um, furious thinking or is it something you you would stand by now? Well, it it must have felt like a complete lack of leadership on that day. And reading it, it feels like quite a shambolic day. Um, and to put things in context, that's Mr. Cummings saying that that was um, <clears throat> the thought that let let people die. It's not necessarily you didn't hear that from the um, Rishi Sunak himself. 
That is what Dominic Cummings said. Reported, yeah. yes. Just let people die. I mean, we were saying this at the time, Rishi Sunak did seem to be someone who was very much pushing back against restrictions. He wanted to let the economy sort of just continue to roll along, prioritising that over public health. And I think it was Rishi Sunak who was sort of um, meant to be the one really pushing um, in September of 2020 um, the sort of herd immunity strategy within Downing Street. So sort of bringing in fairly fringe scientists, actually, to sort of argue against um, the the more mainstream scientists on SAGE, such as Patrick Balance. Um, some interesting things coming out of this inquiry. Um, Downing Street has declined to comment on those claims. They just keep saying, you know, we, we have to let the inquiry do its work. Um, presumably, they'll know that they're very unlikely to still be in power when it's published. You know, when the, when the report is published, Rishi Sunak will likely no longer and be leader of the Conservative Party. Um, but let's see how government ministers are responding. So on Good Morning Britain, um, some of those claims were put to government minister Laura Trott. Did he say, let people die and that's okay? You, you haven't denied that he said that. You said mistakes were made. Yes, and I also said that it's for the inquiry to uh, look at these pieces of evidence. I should also note um, that the Prime Minister will be appearing in front of the inquiry very soon, I think in the next couple of weeks, and it will be for him to talk about these individual things. But yeah, except I think that this is it's such a damaging phrase, and I'm going to ask again, you know, presumably your natural curiosity as someone in that department would say, did Rishi Sunak really say this? Are we callous enough to have... Uh, uttered words like this. And what I'm hearing and what people will be hearing is no denial. Do you think other people might come forward to corroborate this? Do you think it is characteristic of the person who is now our prime minister that he could say about people's lives, let people die and that's okay? Most people at home will know Rishi Sunak, who is now our prime minister, but who was our chancellor then, from when he stood up in front of them and announced support for millions of people at home full furlough to help them stay at home and still retain that money that they desperately needed. That's what they will know him for. Absolutely. Sorry, sorry, can I just, yes, can I just, Laura Trott, I, when I first read this and it was, um, these are words that apparently Dominic Cummings had said that Rishi Sunak had said and they're reported. So they're kind of third hand. I thought to myself, I don't think that's characteristic of Rishi Sunak. Right? I've met him, I've interviewed him. I find right. it astonishing. What I find even more astonishing now is that you're not denying it. I find, I find it absolutely astonishing that either number 10, you are not coming out and saying, we can say categorically, you have a prime minister who wouldn't think of uttering those words. It's interesting, Laura Trott there was saying, you know, people remember Rishi Sunak as the guy who who stood up in front of the country and said, I'm going to introduce furlough. I'm going to make sure um, that you're all okay throughout this pandemic. He's also the guy who was consistently opposed to introducing sick pay, um, which would have you know been a big support for people and would have helped stop the spread of the virus. I mean, it wouldn't have stopped the spread of the virus. It would have reduced the spread of the virus, let's say, if you gave people sick pay. So if they thought they had COVID-19, they could afford to stay at home. Um, when Laura Trott was talking about him being remembered for furlough, you could see the images of Rishi Sunak um, sort of moonlighting as a waiter in um, a restaurant. Oh, the, the name of the restaurant has, has, has skimmed my name, but it doesn't skimmed my mind, but it doesn't really matter. Um, in any case, he was there to promote Eat Out to 
help out. Um, now, that scheme has been accused of leading to a second wave of COVID infections in the summer of 2020, um, prompting um, a further lockdown that winter. Although, as I said, we would have had that lockdown anyway, um, but eat out to help out probably didn't help. Um, this is what Patrick Valance had to say about eat out to help out. Eat out to help out, we didn't know about until it was announced. Um, and I think our advice would have been very clear on that. Just focusing for a moment on Eat Out to Help Out, um, it's evident from your witness statement uh, that at the time uh, you and indeed Sage uh, didn't agree uh, with that approach or at least were alive to, to, to the risks that it, that it brought with it. That would be a better way of putting it. Well, I think up until that point, the message had been very clear, which is interaction between different households and people that you weren't living with in an enclosed environment with many others was a high-risk activity. That policy completely reversed it to saying, we will pay you to go into an environment with people from other households and mix in an indoor environment for periods extended over a couple of hours or more. And that is a completely opposite public health message as a result of that. Now, it's quite likely that had an effect on transmission. In fact, it's very difficult to see how it wouldn't have had an effect on transmission. And that would have been the advice that um, was given had we been asked beforehand. And that's significant. Rishi Sunak has sort of elsewhere, I think in his written submission, sort of given the impression that the scientists did know about Eat Out to Help Out and no one raised objections with him. Patrick Valance, they're saying, well, if we had known, we would have raised an objection because it was a crazy thing to do. <laughs> the, the whole point of public health messaging throughout the pandemic was to say, you know, I don't think it was all right, by the way. I think, you know, I think from, from both sides, I think there are areas where the government went too hard, areas where the government went too soft. I think they should have much more consistently from the outset said, if you're going to socialize, do it outside. I mean, I think throughout the pandemic, probably in retrospect, people spent more time than they needed to locked in their own homes. I think if we were to do it again, hopefully we would sort of prioritize some of the things that really matter in life and, and, and really sort of said, this is a safe way to socialize. This is not a safe way to socialize. Maybe we could have invested a lot of money in outdoor heating so that sort of people could meet outside pubs instead of in, in, in them. And instead what we did is we paid people, as Patrick Valance said there, we paid people to socialize indoors in busy places. It would have been much more useful to use that money um, to subsidize restaurants to move their operations outside so that maybe they could have remained open through more of the winter because people would have been you know, in a, in a less dangerous environment. Um, again, investment in ventilation and the like. I'm hoping, by the way, that this is what we do sort of get out of this inquiry because while it is very interesting sort of hearing the reality of what was going on with the politicians I think if this is just a sort of Westminster drama it's probably a bit of a waste of public money right I mean I think the next time a pandemic comes along we want to be much quicker at working out how dangerous it is how transmissible it is and then working out to what extent we can maintain the parts of sociality and social life that we value and that are necessary for people and their mental health while reducing the risk of transmission. And I think that will involve being a bit more creative um, than anyone was able to be during the pandemic. So sort of moving as much as we possibly can outside instead of locking people in their homes, which, you know, we might have to do it again if an incredibly dangerous pandemic comes along. But it's obviously not something that people remember fondly and for good reason. Um, Hamza, I'm not sure how closely you've been following um, this inquiry. Obviously, lots has been going on at the same 
time. Um, has anything stood out to you so far from sort of the testimony we've heard? I think it's damning, but actually it's not particularly surprising because anybody who was observing kind of the government's response knew that they were almost making up as they as they went along. And I think the important part, like you alluded to, is to at least learn the lessons so that if, if you know, if hopefully not, but if, if we are placed in a similar situation in the future, we at least know what to do moving forwards. And I mean, some of the some of the suggestions, you know, Sunak was, um, he, he deemed it more important to control the scientists rather than COVID. I mean, that's, that's damning. The fact that he was happy to let people die, that's damning. Um, but again, completely unsurprising. I found some of the the commentary from our, you know, obviously Britain has a lot of top political commentators, especially in the mainstream realm. Um, some of them are saying, you know, hindsight, hindsight is a wonderful tool and, you know, let's not rewrite history. But I mean, of all due respect, you don't have to be a top scientific advisor or a top scientist or even a scientist um, to see that some of these policies that were pursued were clearly going to drive up um, infection rates and not be helpful. Um, but no, it's, it's clear this could be really damaging um, for Sunak. But I guess if the findings are to be, you know, really incriminating. If if he's dethroned as prime minister, which looks increasingly likely, it frees up his time. He can go to the jungle and he can launder his reputation. Seems to be what everyone's doing now. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if Rishi Sunak is the jungle type. I mean, Matt Hancock and Nigel Farage now. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what employment opportunities they had outside of of politics. I mean, Nigel Farage obviously spent quite a while. Maybe he still does it. I don't know. Getting paid sums of money to read out happy birthday messages to people um, online. Um, I can't remember the name of that one now either. Wagamama was the restaurant. I remember that while the the clip was on. I can't remember what that website is where you can get people to, to tell you what to read out. Cameo. It's called Cameo. Um, Nigel Farage goes on Cameo, getting people to pay him to say happy birthday to them. So he, he potentially doesn't have the employment opportunities that are open to Rishi Sunak. I think he's probably going to go to California and get a high-paid job in tech instead of going into the jungle. Or I suppose he can just live off the um, hundreds of millions of pounds that his wife is worth. Um, that guy is not going to be short of cash, whatever happens at the next general election. Next story. Israel's claim about a Hamas HQ under Al-Shifa hospital has become one of the most hotly contested issues in their war on Gaza. And on CNN, a former Israeli prime minister made a significant admission. Ehud Barak is speaking to Christiane Amanpour. Can I just start by asking you to, what, what is your view of whether your government, your military, has done a good enough job of proving their claim that there was a major command center and bunker under al-Shifa? Uh, it's, uh, it's already known for many years that they have in the bunkers that originally was built by Israeli constructors underneath Shifa was, were used as a command post uh, of the Hamas and a kind of a, a junction of several, uh, several uh, tunnels uh, part of the system. I don't know to say to what extent it is a major. It's probably not the the only uh, uh, kind of command post. Several others are under other uh, hospitals or in other uh, sensitive places. But it's for sure had been used by uh, by uh, Hamas even during this uh, conflict. Well, that's the first time I've heard that particular admission made by a senior. Israeli politician. So the one about the fact that the tunnels underneath Al Shifa were built by the Israelis. Um, it's not a surprise, though. In fact, we've been reporting for days on this show that Israel themselves 
built tunnels under Shifa Hospital. And we knew that because it had been revealed in a 2014 article in the pro-Israel tablet magazine. Now, this is the article in question. So, top secret Hamas command bunker in Gaza revealed. And then this is the relevant passage. The Israelis are so sure about the location of the Hamas bunker, however, not because they are trying to score propaganda points or because it has been repeatedly mentioned in passing by Western reporters, but because they built it. Back in 1983, when Israel still ruled Gaza, they built a secure underground operating room and tunnel network beneath Shifa Hospital, which is one among several reasons why Israeli security sources are so sure that there is a main Hamas command bunker in or around the large cement basement beneath the area of Building 2 of the hospital. So what Ehud Barak said isn't new, right? We've known this for a while. But take a look at Christiane Amanpour's reaction. Well, when you say it was built by Israeli engineers, did you misspeak? No, no, somebody, you know, decades ago, we were the, wanting the place. So we held them. It was decades, many decades ago, probably five, de four decades ago, that we helped them to build these uh, bunkers in order to enable uh, more, more, uh, more space for the operation of the hospital within the very limited uh, size of this compound. Okay. All right. Well, that, that's that that that's that sort of thrown me a little bit. So these were there for a long, long time, but you're claiming or they're claiming that they're used as a major command center. Anyway, the, the fact of the matter is that as yet, um, they have not shown conclusive proof of that. Really interesting. Now, I mean, I, I, you know, Christian Amanpour handled that interview well. She didn't know a fact. She didn't pretend. Um, and, you know, what Ehud Barak said was notable. I have, as I say, I haven't heard any sort of other leading Israeli politician say that publicly. But it is also the case that we have known this for a while. And that does matter because we have heard over and over again from Western journalists essentially repeating Israeli talking points that it's these tunnels under Shifa Hospital that make it a legitimate military target. And then we've seen, I mean, these have also been debunked, really, haven't they? But sort of uh, the IDF put out a video where they say, oh, this is a shaft that goes into a tunnel under the hospital, and therefore that's proof that the hospital is fair game. And then you've got reporters sort of repeating that uncritically. And it would be very helpful if when the IDF are telling these stories to mainstream journalists, they were aware of things such as the fact that Israel built these tunnels themselves, right? Now, that doesn't, as we as we always say, that that doesn't mean uh, you know Israel could have built the tunnels for one purpose and then Hamas used them for a different purpose. You know that's perfectly plausible. But what we keep hearing is this idea that the fact of tunnels under these hospitals and then Israel shows some sort of some evidence of tunnels and then suddenly that's supposed to mean oh this was a Hamas HQ and therefore the hospital is fair game. I mean Hamza, what did you make of uh, of that interview? And I suppose Christiane Amanpour's sort of complete surprise at what Barack had just said. I think it was actually a metaphor for the way the Western media's, um, mainstream media's handled much of the coverage. The fact that this issue of the tunnel has been a talking point, it's just been regurgitated by, you know, military spokespeople, um, Israeli ones, and it's just gone as the main line. I mean, without any scrutiny, without being challenged, journalists, especially presenters on mainstream, supposedly, you know, heavyweights, broadcast heavyweights like CNN, they're supposed to be well-informed, they're supposed to be rigorous with their research. I mean, she's shocked that um, Israel exaggerates or fabricates claims, justifies campaigns. Really? Um, who, who, who else is shocked by that? I mean, this happens all the time. And, and, and as I said, this is, this is what Israel has been doing. They've always lied. They, they've committed their atrocities and lied about it before. But it just, like I said, it speaks, to, it goes to right to the heart of the problem, which is that Israel can 
and too often in this in this latest um, chapter, you know, the start chapter in Gaza, too often they've just been able to regurgitate claims like, for example, the new one is, um, oh, we need to target the Hamas militants and their command centres and their hubs in the in the south. But you said in the north they were, that was their main hubs and their command centres. And all of these claims, that's just one of them, all of these claims continue to be repeated um, by presenters, by journalists, as if, you know, they, they just manufactured their bogus claims, which have become facts. And, you know, the famous quote, um, attributed you know, to a journalism professor, if someone says it's raining, another person says it's dry, your job is not to, quote, not to quote them both. Your job is to look out the window and find out which is true. That doesn't exist when it comes to what the Israeli official narrative is. If the Israeli official narrative says that there are tunnels underneath that were built by Hamas, that's it. CNN and all the rest of them and all the broadcasters and all the journalists go with that narrative. And that's why that is kind of that, that interview in and of itself illustrated why a lot of people are talking of media complicity because there hasn't been much challenging of the narratives coming from the Israeli side whereas the Palestinian side any Palestinian representative who's on you know the mainstream channels gets forensically scrutinized and gets challenged you know with you know relentlessly and you know like I said it's, it's, this is what happens when you create a culture of just regurgitating and taking the Israeli narratives to be you know common sense when a lot of the time they are manufactured at best or or you know exaggerated. Yeah, I think the other metaphor in there. So I saw, I think I saw it in a tweet today, which I thought was 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 very insightful. So it sort of said, when when the left say, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What we mean is a is an independent, um, secular, one member, one vote, or sort of one person, one vote state. And then sort of the right say, oh no, what you mean? What you mean is genocide of all Jews in in historic Palestine. And then they say when Netanyahu says. Um, what we want to do is destroy every man, woman, and child in in Gaza. Obviously, citing Amalek, everyone says, "No, no, no, no." What he means is an anti-terror operation. So you've got all these journalists where, when it's a Palestinian talking, they assume the worst, and when it's an Israeli talking, they assume the best. Even when the Israeli is sort of saying it to the, "No, no, no," we we want to kill them all. They're like, "No, surely, surely, what you mean, what you mean is anti-terror operation within the rules of law." They're like, "No, no, no, we 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 mean killing everyone. We want to kick them out." Is that that, that kind of different? Assume the worst with the Palestinians, assume the best with the Israelis, and even when the Israelis tell you out loud what they are planning, or what they've done in the past, you say, surely you meant Hamas built the tunnels, no? This is very relevant to our next story, so we will go straight on to that. John Kirby is a US national security spokesman who's been awful throughout Israel's war on Gaza. In late October, he was relaxed about civilian casualties in the Strip. Being honest about the fact that there have been civilian casualties and that there likely will be more is being honest because that's what war is. It's brutal, it's ugly, it's messy. I've said that before. The president also said that yesterday. Doesn't mean we have to like it. So he's very, very relaxed about civilians dying in the war. That's just a fact of reality. You know, you journalists stop asking me difficult questions about it. And it was especially notable because of how it compares um, to John Kirby's reaction to civilian casualties um, when the dead people were Ukrainians. It's hard to look at what he's doing in Ukraine, what his forces are doing in Ukraine, and think that any um, uh, ethical, moral individual could justify that. It's difficult to look at the sorry. It's difficult to look at some of the images and imagine that any well thinking 
serious, mature leader would do that. So clearly for Kirby, some lives matter more than others, which is presumably why he said in October that the US was imposing no red lines on Israel, a stance he repeated on the 8th of November. In late October, you had referred to the fact that the administration is not drawing any red lines for Israel. As the death toll for civilians in the Gaza Strip has gone up, I wanted to ensure, is that still the case, that the administration has no red lines? (laughs) That is still the case. So Palestinian lives don't really matter, and therefore Israel can do whatever they want, no red lines. It's a very consistent position from Kirby, and it's a stance which has been on show again this week. I said this the other day, again, people can say what they want on on the sidewalk, and, that, and we respect that. That's what the First Amendment's about. But this word genocide's getting thrown around in a pretty inappropriate way by lots of different folks. Uh, what Hamas wants, make no mistake about it, is genocide. They want to wipe Israel off the map. They've said so publicly more than one occasion. In fact, just recently. And they've said that they're not going to stop. What happened on the 7th of October is going to happen again and again and again. And what happened on the 7th of October? Murder, slaughter of innocent people in their homes or at a music festival. That's genocidal intentions. Yes, there are too many civilian casualties in Gaza. Yes, the numbers are too high. Yes, too many families are grieving. And yes, we continue to urge the Israelis to be as careful and cautious as possible. That's not going to stop from the president right on down. But Israel is not trying to wipe the Palestinian people off the map. Israel's not trying to wipe Gaza off the map. Israel's trying to defend itself against a genocidal terrorist threat. So when we're going to start, if we're going to start using that word, fine, let's use it appropriately. So people can say what they want on the sidewalk, but the facts are this, Hamas wants genocide, but Israel, Israel is not trying to wipe Palestinians off the map. Israel is not even trying to wipe Gaza off the map. Now, who exactly has John Kirby been listening to? Presumably not Israel's defense minister, who said this, we are imposing a complete siege on the city of Gaza. There will be no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly. Um, I assume John Kirby had ignored that statement. He just hadn't seen it. Maybe no one had briefed him. Presumably, Kirby has also ignored the military commander in charge of the occupied territories who said this, Israel has imposed a total blockade on Gaza, no electricity, no water, just damage. You wanted hell, you will get hell. No genocidal language there, none at all. Or maybe Kirby just ignored it again. Now, Perhaps Kirby was also otherwise occupied when an IDF spokesperson said, quote, the emphasis is on damage and not on accuracy in Gaza. And maybe his translator was taking a break when a defense official said, quote, Gaza will eventually turn into a city of tents. Of course, one can only assume Kirby didn't get the biblical reference when Netanyahu referred to Gaza as Amalek, meaning Israel should kill every man, woman and child there. And nor did he notice when the finance minister said this, I agree with every word of Giora Ilan in this column. Now, the column in question proposed using epidemics as a weapon of war against the 2.2 million people in Gaza. So when it comes to genocidal language from the Israelis, John Kirby doesn't want to hear it. He's got his fingers in his ears. Hear no evil, see no evil. Other people are more concerned, though. 
Raz Segal is Associate Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University. He thinks Israel is committing a genocide. And he explained why to Owen Jones. So he explained why Israel meets that definition. Now, genocide, according to the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide from December 1948, requires two main things. Uh, uh, One is intent, and we're talking about special intent, and that's the uh, high threshold that uh, I was referring to. Um, The intent in the language of the convention means intent to destroy a group, and that's a national, ethnic, religious, or racial group, as such. Okay, now as such is very important because it means that members of the group need to be targeted as members of the group, not just as individuals, right? So the intent is very important. It's usually very, very difficult to prove intent. And that's why we have very few cases recognized as genocide since World War II. And then once you establish intent, you also need to show the dynamics of violence on the ground, that they are actually genocidal in the sense that they fall into one or more of the five acts of genocide listed in the convention, which is killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm, creating conditions calculated to bring about the destruction of the group. And then there's also preventing birth within the group or forcibly transferring children from one group to the other. Now, the case of uh, Israel's attack on Gaza is actually very uh, unique uh, um, it's actually exceptional, I think, in a number of ways, but it's but it's unique in the sense of dis- discussing it uh, as what I think it is, that is genocide, because the intent is so clearly articulated, right? And it's articulated, it's articulated throughout uh, Israeli uh, media and society and politics now. And anyone who follows Hebrew language sources is exposed to shocking, shocking language by members of parliament, by journalists, on social media, in public spaces, calling to annihilate Gaza, to destroy Gaza, to flatten Gaza, to kill everyone, so on and so forth. But it's articulated since the 7th of October, actually, by people with what's called an international law command authority, right, or command responsibility. That is state leaders, members of the war cabinet, um, and senior army officers. So according to Sigal, genocidal intent has been expressed by the Israelis and it's been expressed by the relevant Israelis, so people with command authority over how their military behaves. Um, Raz then went on to describe what he believes constitutes Israel's genocidal actions. Now, they include, he says, the enormous civilian death toll from Israel's bombing campaign, which has damaged half its buildings. And then he said this. When you think about the total siege proclamation, right? The cutting off of water, food, uh, 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 fuel, medical supplies, together with a forced displacement of more than a million and a half Palestinians of the 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza so far, right? Especially because Israel has ordered the evacuation of Palestinians from the north to the south. That now, in the last six weeks, have created actually, in the language of the convention, conditions calculated to bring about the destruction of the group. Why? Because indeed, the siege has created what it was meant to create. That is, we now face starvation conditions in Gaza, right? Palestinians, they are facing starvation, surviving on less than two pieces of bread a day, uh, three liters of water a day. Now, the World Health Organization recommends at least 100 liters of water a day for everything, cooking, washing, drinking, of course. 
Palestinians are now surviving on three liters of water a day. Medical supplies have run out. Fuel is running out. We know that hospitals have been bombed. Uh, uh, they have no uh, uh, um, medical supplies and fuel to uh, uh, do what hospitals need to do to save lives and treat uh, 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 people, certainly in a time uh, of war. Um, uh, so we have now unbelievable overcrowding conditions uh, uh, that are ripe for the uh, outbreak of uh, infectious diseases. Um, so indeed, conditions calculated to bring about the destruction of the group in the language um, of the UN Convention. So we have both the intent and the dynamics of violence uh, uh, on the ground. And, you know, again, because the intent is expressed so explicitly, so directly, in such unashamed uh, uh, ways, and it's continued to be expressed in this way, um, then I do think that what we're seeing in front of our eyes is a textbook case uh, uh, of genocide. So Sagal's assessment, this is a textbook case of, of genocide, is not universally held among scholars of genocide. There is disagreement among that community. He's also not an outlier, though. Yet for John Kirby, it's crazy to call Israel's government genocidal. He's saying it's Hamas that want genocide. Israel, Israel would never do anything like that. All they want to do is defeat a terrorist organization. It's just idiots on the street who might throw around this genocide word. Obviously, he's ignoring these genocide scholars who fundamentally disagree. Um, Hamza, how would you respond to, to John Kirby? I'd ask him how he sleeps at night. Um, I mean, he's, this, this, is, this is what complicity in the mass murder of Palestinians looks like. I mean, it's as grim as it, as it is duplicitous. Um, and the problem is this is... The, we, we see the refugee camps being being targeted multiple times. We've seen hospitals being struck multiple times. We've seen schools being bombarded. We've seen UN shelters um, being attacked, evacuation orders um, being being issued, which a war crime in and of itself, and also those people being told to flee from the north to the south and then being bombed subsequently. I mean, the list is endless. And, you know, even if it doesn't take scholars to to kind of verify and to legitimise those claims. Palestinians have been saying for so long, why can't you just look with your own eyes and see the level of destruction and death and horror and, you know, take a stance? But unfortunately, um, we know the name of the game. Israel gets unqualified and unconditional support, no matter the degree of its uh, atrocities, because the only the only alternative from John Kirby and the rest of them is to um, hold Israel to account, is to question its, its campaign of mass slaughter, to ask the tough questions of it. But that, that by extension humanize the Palestinians and we know that's simply not an option and, and as I said he's by no means alone in this this is the playbook uh, that the international community unfortunately has been operating from the German foreign minister yesterday I think said the same thing said you know we, we can't we can't call for a ceasefire we can't accept a ceasefire um, because every day Hamas makes it clear he wants to wipe Israel off the map I mean this is this this is this was on the same day that um, I think it was Lapid who's a supposedly a moderate Israeli politician um, and who himself is climbing up the poles was saying actually all the the number of you know the number of um, deaths in 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 Gaza they're all terrorists and good riddance. So the language, as as you said, as as a scholar pointed out, matches the intent. The intent is you know complete annihilation, wiping Gaza off the map, and uh, you know the, the mass murder of Palestinians. But we just keep being gaslighted. And people keep being told no. This is this is all about other. You know this is about. Israel's right to defend itself, and this is this is actually, you know, when Palestinians are murdered and you know systematically murdered, actually that means Hamas wants to murder Israel and wipe Israel off the map. It's, you know, it's honestly, if it wasn't so heartbreaking, it would be it's ludicrous. It genuinely is ludicrous. Let's go to our final story. I'm going to show you a video 
that you might find deeply disturbing. It's from University Challenge, which aired on the BBC on Monday night. Hi, I'm Malika Gorgiana. I'm from Leeds and I'm reading for a PhD in astrophysics. I'm their captain. Hi there, I'm Arthur Wharton. I'm from Cardiff and I'm reading for a PhD in Spanish. Did you notice the sick symbolism in that shot? Take another look. Now, in case you missed it, can we get this up? Here's that shocking scene again. Um, If we can't get it up now, we'll do it in the upload afterwards. Doesn't matter. I'll continue. Now, in the middle there, or in the, imagine this, imagine you can see it. In the middle is an offending article. It's an octopus soft toy being used as a mascot by the team from Christchurch, Oxford. Now, if you don't know the supposed meaning of that toy, there are plenty of people online who can fill you in. One of them, an expert on this kind of thing, is the Tory peer Baroness Foster, who posted this. OMG, BBC, you allow this student to deliberately display one of the most disgusting anti-Semitic symbols on TV. The student responsible, Georgiana, should be arrested and expelled. Um, And then she's added Christchurch, Oxford and Ofcom. Ofcom don't arrest people, by the way, although I suppose she's hoping that Ofcom will have a go at BBC. And then FYI, for your information, 10 Downing Streets of the Prime Minister and James Cleverly, um, now the Home Secretary. So I suppose maybe she's hoping that he will give direct orders to the police to arrest um, this contestant from University Challenge um, for her disgusting anti-Semitic symbols. Um, Of course, we're saying these symbols were from her. It's unclear it has anything to do with Gorgiana. So, so, so why is she being picked out from that panel of four students? I wonder why. Um, journalist David Atherton went even further. Um, this is Malika Gorgiana, who is doing a PhD in astrophysics at Christchurch. Um, she appears in Palestinian colors and the deeply anti-Semitic trope of a Jewish blue octopus with its tentacles all over the world. Comment, BBC Two. Now, you can see that there have been anti-Semitic tropes which have involved octopuses. Um, It's very unclear. That's what the octopus on University Challenge meant. It's also the case that the jacket is, is, is not a Palestinian flag sort of sewn to make a very nice top. Um, instead, it's from Zara. Um, not exactly the Hamas merch store. Um, a very nice jacket, I think. Now, this story may seem pretty stupid, but it's really about a young Muslim woman being targeted online for the crime of appearing on television. And the claims about intended symbolism are, of course, completely false. The BBC has published this clarification. We are aware of a number of inaccurate claims being made online in relation to last night's episode of University Challenge, and we utterly condemn the abuse that has been posted and shared. For the avoidance of doubt, this episode was filmed in March. The mascot is one of many chosen by the team during the course of the series and is one of their favorite animals. The jacket worn by one of the contestants was navy blue, orange, pink, and green. Bought from a high street retailer, it has no connection to any flag. So that's from a BBC spokesperson. Of course, um, I imagine this was all rather distressing for that contestant. You've got Lord's peers um, asking that she be arrested and expelled. Um Hamza, what do you make of this whole somewhat, I mean, I, I call it a ridiculous controversy. I, I assume it was, you know, rather stressful and traumatic for the young Muslim woman who has found herself at the center of it. 
Yeah, I mean, I found it staggering. I think some of the, we've seen a lot on Twitter, anyone who's an avid user of Twitter, unfortunately, has seen these accusations of any anything remotely resembling not just Palestinian, but kind of the Muslim voice at the moment. It's just anything is just smeared as, as anti-Semitic. And I think what, in and of itself, the people that are claiming to supposedly stand against racism in, in the form of anti-Semitism are actually being inherently Islamophobic because they're assuming that the very presence of this of this of this um, this young lady is actually um, inherently she's being inherently offensive to to Jews. She's practicing anti-Semitism, which is simply not the case. Um, and that accusation, I, I think, is very sinister. It's one that we see quite often, not just attributed to any Palestinian solidarity, but just in general, that the presence of, of Muslims and especially Muslim females is, for some reason, offends a lot of people. And we know what that reason is, because they are actually the real racists. They are the ones that hold those inflammatory and divisive views about a particular community. Um, so whilst obviously it was, I'm glad actually BBC did clarify it, um, well, these type of things shouldn't be given airtime, nor should need clarification, because they should be called out from the beginning, and shouldn't be, you know, accelerated in the way in the way that it was. But like I said, inherently, it's very sinister the fact that the mere presence of a Muslim female offends people, and they try to project as if it's her actually creating the offence. And all these people talking as if they have all this expertise when they're just, you know, they should know that this is an inherent, disgusting, anti-Semitic symbol and she should be arrested. What, what, gave, what, what gave you the right to sort of make these wild claims on a public platform? Um, let's wrap up there. We won't talk anymore about this ridiculous controversy. Um, Hamza, it's been really great having you on tonight's show and we'll definitely have you back soon. Pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.